What happens when we face difficult conversations? These conversations can heal. They can foster forgiveness. They can inspire and change perspective. Lean into these stories and discussions. I think both our guests and our listeners will find value in them. And selfishly, I know I will too. Communities with thriving businesses, quality schools, access to fresh foods, and high percentages of home ownership provide members of those communities with the best chance for social economic success. And with that comes good health. That's not that groundbreaking of a statement. But what remains elusive is what is the best way to build up struggling communities. Today's guest on Lean In has what I would say is a pretty good blueprint for how to do that. And it's worked out pretty well in a community known as Kendall Whittier. All right, welcome back to Lean In, everyone. I am here with Kirk Wester. And just a little background, one of my interests is the impact of social factors on health, meaning those factors that are outside of healthcare that contribute to the good health or the poor health of an individual or a community. And this happens to be something that I would say Kirk has a really unique insight and expertise in. And so, one, I want to welcome you, Kirk. Thanks for taking the time to to jump on Lean In today. And I'm really excited to just hear his perspective and also hear uh, about a company uh, named Grow Together Tulsa. But I'm just going to start by asking Kirk to kind of tell us about environment as a social determinant of health and how where you live, work, and play can actually contribute to your health. Yeah, I think it's probably important to preface, you know, my comments just by explaining a little bit about my life experience and why that's contributing to this conversation. So 20, I guess 25-ish years ago, just following completing college, my wife and I really felt compelled to do something that was impactful in the world. And um, for us, that drew us to a personal conviction that we needed to live in a community that was struggling. And I think much to the surprise of family and friends, honestly, we began looking where are some of the highest crime rates. And for us at the time in the 90s, Kendall Whittier actually had one of the highest crime rates in the city. It was really ravaged by the adult industry. Lots of substance use was happening, a long history of disinvestment. And so, yeah, we bought our first home there in 1998. And that decision fundamentally changed who we are, changed my life. Honestly, you know, looking back, when I made that decision, I would say it was largely made from a point of what I would probably title now kind of like white savior syndrome type of thing, you know, that you're going to go here and change the world. What's been really cool about it is my community has been so amazing and has taught me a lot to where I honestly feel like my family and I have been the primary benefactors of that choice. 
I, I can definitely see how powerful my community has, the role that they've played in shaping my kids, who they are. And there's just been such amazing beauty in our community that I never expected. That being said, to your point and your question of social determinants, the best way I like to describe this is, is that when we concentrate poverty, often what comes with that is a whole host of conditions or absence of amenities or presence of certain challenges that culminate into a series of what I would just call toxic stressors. So think about that of like, you know, you've got a high crime rate. So these, you may be experiencing certain issues of trauma or you have a park that has zero amenities. And so all of these things combined collectively start to begin to create a series of toxic stressors that we're now finding in the literature actually can impede neurological development, motor skill development, a whole host of things. And, and what's so important about that is I think that most of us who are of means tend to think that our children succeed because we're amazing parents. And I would just have to say my naive notion was is that oftentimes people were living in these conditions because they just either were subpar people or they certainly weren't going to be great parents, right? Like who in God's name would send their kid, you live, cause their kid to grow up in these places. What I found is they're actually amazing parents. And it caused me to question like, at the end of the day, the only difference that I had, and I and I believe I had amazing parents, but the only difference that that I had versus some of our very closest friends who are amazing parents and their kids, is that they had the means to be able to afford to place their kid in a in an environment and in a culture that was not just throwing toxic stressors on them day in day out day in day out, and that is huge. But at the end of the day, the problem is is when our kids succeed. You know, we step back and say, ah, yeah, you know, that was me. That was awesome. And I think that was one of the biggest epiphanies that I woke up to in my community is that I am completely insufficient to be everything my kids needed to be. But my community has it, and it's been great to see it. So let's talk a little bit more about Kendall Whittier and its evolution and how it's changed over the years from, you know, back 100 years ago to, to where it is today? Yeah, it's a good question. So Kendall Whittier really started out as Tulsa's first suburban district, believe it or not. This is well before the sprawl of Tulsa. Right at Admiral and Lewis is, exists one of the first shopping districts in Tulsa. And that it was very thriving. And then over time, we started to see kind of a, an expansion of the city. And then subsequently, kind of this phenomenon of white flight and, and folks began to move out of the urban core and move into the suburbs. And as a result, the neighborhood began to decline. And, and of course, the property, the age of the properties began to show their wear and tear. And so, you know, fast forward to the 1970s and 80s, and you start to see really an influx of, of, of just random apartments that the private sector started creating to kind of help with the housing issues that TU, which is physically in our neighborhood, the University of Tulsa, to help offset that. And then once University of Tulsa decided to actually capture the housing stock within its own facilities, that left those apartment communities really to, to transform into just really, really substandard housing because you, you had property owners come in and purchase those that were just kind of cycling people in and out. I would say that one shift that happened that was, I think, saved the community from really completely going down was a huge influx of immigrants. So in the 1980s, immigrants began to come to Tulsa, and Kendall Whittier was really 
historically like the entry point for new immigrants into Tulsa. And then once they would establish themselves financially, they typically move out east. The cool thing, which uh, I can share in a little bit, is, is we're seeing a reversal of that trend now. But, but by and large, it was these immigrants that really began to create this sense of community in that space, ownership in that space. And you started to see some significant kind of cultural identification within the business district and otherwise that really helped to stabilize it until we were able to begin to see some of the revitalization efforts happen. I can speak for myself when I say this, but I I know that other people kind of fall into this category and being naive to believe that every community that is struggling welcomes socioeconomic development or redevelopment. My first question in regards to that is why would some communities be apprehensive of that? We think, hey, this this community needs some help. Let's go help them. Why, Why might it not be that simple? I think first and foremost, depends on the community. I, my experience has been particularly and historically African-American communities. They've had that happen to them enough times to realize and being you know, rightfully so incredibly disillusioned by the outcome, right? Our new immigrant communities are newer, and so they don't have that same history of failed promises by government yet, right? But they're certainly starting to get there, and certainly on the coast where those Immigrant communities are older and have multiple generations. They can certainly attest to that. But here in Tulsa, that hasn't been the case. But when you look in the, the, the past, I would say that the primary challenges are caused by most of these efforts are led by political means. So you have a mayor that comes in, for example, and suddenly wants to do something to, to rightfully so, to, to help. But they go about it in a way that tends to be very top-down driven tends to think about things in silos. For example, most cities think that if I just encourage economic development, then that'll happen. You know, so you start to build these things that are not complete. They don't create complete neighborhoods. And so the ramifications of that lack of comprehensiveness and what I would say, what we've discovered, the secret sauce is really a locally uh, governed, locally grown, what we call community quarterback. If you don't have a community quarterback, what we've seen over and over and over again, this is across the country, is these efforts will inevitably fail. And the reason why they fail is because it's the community quarterback job, and that's the work that Growing Together plays. It's our job to essentially ensure that the vision that the community came up with, right, comes to reality. And what we've experienced in Kendall Whittier, for example, is we had a lot of attention from, say, city or philanthropy or whatever, but particularly from the city in their, in their early years, and then they come in and, and make some improvements that are very good improvements, but we're, we're certainly far from the finish line. If you think about a relay race, they run, the first, you know, they run the first leg, but then they walk away saying, hey, we finished. No, you finished, right? And so that th- the problem then becomes a community quarterback. If without a community quarterback, there's not somebody to say, hey, wait a minute, we're not done yet. And constantly putting that pressure to make sure that we get over the finish line. And finally, regularly monitoring to make sure that the people that live there all along are the primary benefactors of that, of, that, of that improvement. And so that's really why communities oftentimes, historically, and understandably so, are incredibly skeptical of these types of work or bodies of work because there's just, even when there's best of intentions, it's not comprehensive enough. There's not somebody that's realizing that these communities didn't get there overnight. It took decades, even centuries for them to get that way. And it's going to take decades to get them out. And so having that, that patience, 
that grit to get in there and get the wait till they get to get the job done is really what's, what's going to be required. So Kirk and I originally met at a community health roundtable discussion. And I remember at some point we were talking about building up communities and someone, I don't know if it was me, it might have been me, uh, used the term gentrification. And <laughs> I, I found out really quickly that that's just not a term you love. And I think your explanation of why that's not a term that you use really sat well with me. And I don't think I'll be using that term anymore. So sh- share with us. Yeah, I, I think the term gentrification is fraught with challenges. I understand what it's trying to communicate, but there's not a common definition, first of all. But I think th- what is common is this notion that it is growth to the exclusion of other people, primarily and explicitly white folks moving in and pushing people of color out. And that, back to your earlier question, is one of the number one reasons why communities of color without a community quarterback have been incredibly skeptical and reticent because they've seen that happen, particularly in more larger cities where revitalization almost always comes with or comes with the meaning and notion that white folks are going to come in and reclaim the spaces that we've had all along. And so the question really should be, is that growth inclusive or exclusive? What really didn't sit well with me is that there's been, we've seen tremendous improvement in Kendall Whittier. And there's been a couple of national kind of websites that have, that are kind of monitoring quote unquote gentrification. And I've seen a couple of them that label our community as gentrified. And when I look into it, what they're really only monitoring is growth metrics. And there's an assumption, and understandably so, that when there's growth in historically disenfranchised communities, that that growth is exclusive, meaning it's pushing people out, aka gentrification. But that's not been our experience at all. In fact, you know, what we've seen over the last 10 years and and based upon a recent study that we have completed is it appears that Kendall Whittier is the only inclusively grown neighborhood in the city of Tulsa in the last decade. There's been four neighborhoods that have shown above average growth for the city that started out in in low-income circumstances. And Kendall Whittier seems to be the only one right now that is primarily benefiting people of color and specifically Latinx individuals. And that's primarily, I would argue, because we have ahead of time, before private investments happened, done the hard work of protecting places for our low-income families to remain. And so there's a lot of practices and policies that we've worked on with our partners that actually protect those places for them to be there. So for me, being from Tulsa, the, the changes in Kendall Whittier, they're so amazing. I find myself driving through Kendall Whittier on the way to downtown, and I've never done that before. And I think that just shows how far this community has come over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. It's it's incredible. Tell us a a little bit more about Growing Together Tulsa and how you were that community quarterback for Kendall Whittier and what some of the challenges were, maybe some surprises. I, I just, I think the audience should hear a lot more about GTT. Yeah, thank you. So Growing Together really came out of a, a partnership between the United Way, CAP Tulsa, which is a high quality early childhood organization. They provide early childhood services and the George Kaiser Family Foundation. The three of them got together and um, there was an opportunity that was coming from the federal government during the Obama administration called Promise Neighborhoods. And the idea was from the Obama administration is how could we really target a number of public agencies to really affect change in a, in a more of a collective impact way. Although collective impact, that terminology had not been created yet. They 
heard about me and the work that my wife and I had done. We had started a community health clinic there in the neighborhood, and then we had also volunteered as a num- you know in a number of nonprofits. And so we got together and started formulating what this might look like. And so I think what was critical is that they is, is I mean my background's in psychotherapy. I was managing a counseling firm for 15 years, and so. I didn't know the first thing about neighborhood revitalization, but I did know a ton about what my community wanted and desired and had the ability to learn more from them about this effort. And so when asked to, to lead this, we you know, got busy and, and my first task was to hire a team. And, and one of the things that's been critical, I should say, in the evolution of our organization is we provide a huge preference in hiring people with lived experiences. So far in 10 years of our existence, 76% of my employees have been people of color, but more importantly, just just under half of my employees have actually been from the neighborhoods that we've targeted. And the reason why that's important is because I can teach people skills all day long, but I can't can't give you a lived experience. And, And it's that lived experience that informs our work day in, day out, and provides that credibility with our community that says they know that we're not going home to the suburbs and saying, ah, you know, that's what I do my eight to five. It's both a challenge and a, and a benefit, but, you know, when you can't just walk away and go home because, you know, your neighbor is depending upon you to deliver what you promised them that you would, that's just a just different perspective. So I would say that growing together has evolved quite a bit. This work was pretty young. There wasn't a lot of examples that we could glean off of, but we pretty rapidly found uh, a national network called Purpose Built Communities that was doing work in Atlanta for a couple decades. And became part of that network, which created kind of the framework that says, in order to do this, we need to ensure that we're injecting mixed income housing at scale, that we're creating an amazing education pipeline that's neighborhood serving, and that there's a sense of community wellness or community vibrancy. We've, we, we kind of, that's a bigger bucket for us that kind of is starting to now include economic development in that mix. But you go about essentially identifying or creating a plan with your community Then after you create that plan, you identify who are the strategic partners and what are those resources needed to deploy that plan. You bring those partners together and you you primarily work in the community quarterbacking space, which is ensuring that those partners are delivering on the outcomes that they promised. The best way to describe this in summary is that if you're going to go remodel a home, let's say you buy a home and it's going to be your dream home, but it's, it's really kind of in shambles. And so you create a vision. You would not go out and hire a bunch of subcontractors, walk away, and come back six months later and expect that your vision became a reality. Because there's lots of obstacles that come. There's lots of shifts. There's lots of decisions that have to be made. But instead, you hire a general contractor whose sole job it is to be accountable to the homeowner to make sure that vision becomes reality. Well, in this case, our community has hired us to be the the general contractor. The neighborhood is the home, and the homeowner is our community. And so that's really what our job is. We are charged by our community to ensure that their vision becomes reality, and that's who we're ultimately accountable to. Oftentimes when we see communities being, quote-unquote, rebuilt, we may see all lower-income housing, or we may see primarily higher-income housing. It seems like mixed-income housing was a big piece of all of this. Can you, it's critical. Can you yeah. talk about that and why specifically mixed income housing is really critical to the success of the community. Yeah. What I think often happens in our work to revitalize communities is we don't take into consideration the fact that we just simply don't have enough resources in the 
public sector and say from private donations to get the job done. You have, and ultimately, what people want to, what people want in their community is the exact same thing that you and I want: is we want to be included in the economics of the of the city. We want to be included in. We don't want to have to drive four miles to go to get to a grocery store. But you know what's so odd is that we acknowledge that we don't want that for our own families, but somehow we think it's rocket science. For example, why there's food deserts. There is, it's not rocket science, it's that there's not enough disposable income in a community to support a grocery store. If you have disposable income in mass, I don't have to convince some grocery store to somehow build there. It's just part of their model. Similarly, and that, that, that begets a whole host of other economic development projects. And so that's what is often missing is this idea of how are we leveraging and understanding economics at play in revitalization. So I often say is how do we leverage the power of capitalism with the morality of socialism? In other words, how do we understand that capitalism is a very powerful force, but left untethered and unguarded, it obviously will walk over and trample everybody to get to its ends. But ultimately, how do we leverage that to benefit all the people in that community and to provide a sense of equity in terms of its benefit? So mixed income housing is a critical piece of our strategy, but it's not just the fact that you're injecting mixes of income. We need to do that in a very strategic way so that it's not like this side of the neighborhood is, is wealthier. And this is and so we've actually, even on the housing or sing, what we call single family homes, you may have a brand new home market rate next door to a Habitat home. And the thing is, is we've worked with Habitat, for example, to create a, a, a high enough quality product that when you drive by, you should not know the difference. The only difference is, is that one costs half the price of the other. And so that's around that whole idea of inclusion. Additionally, we do that on the rental products as well. So we've got mixed income multifamily, like you see at West Park, that we worked with the George Kaiser Family Foundation on. And then you've got the work that we're doing as an organization with this mixed income neighborhood trust, you know, where we have multiple single family homes that are all in a portfolio spread across the, the neighborhood that are, some are market rate, some are affordable. The profits from the market rate help offset the, the costs to, to provide affordable rents. The last point I'll make on this is one of the key things that we've seen is in our, in our community, what we've seen now is that over the last 10 years, for the first time in five decades, those that own homes in our neighborhood, which I should say we have an unusually high home ownership rate among our Latino families, for the first time in five decades, those families are seeing appreciation in their home's value greater than the city average. Like, like that the, and we know that real estate in your home is one of the primary ways to break the cycle of poverty, right? To generate wealth. Additionally, for the first time in really two decades, we're starting to see Latinos come back to the neighborhood. We saw, we saw almost double the rate of growth in our neighborhood among Latinos than the city of Tulsa saw. Finally, we're also seeing an increase in the number of Latinos who have college education. So a 205% increase in 10 years of the number of Latinos with a bachelor's degree or higher. That is insane. And so it, the cool part about it now is that we're able to start to, to, to honor and understand the, and recognize the, the cultural significance that is there, and people are starting to really gain ownership of that community for themselves. Final point I'll make with, with growing together is our work evolves over the time. When initially, right, it was around protecting places. Then it became around incentivizing or trying to sp spur private growth. And now it is around really thinking through how do we continue to ensure inclusive growth happens. One big example of this is we, up until recently, economic development was not one of our pillars. 
we largely just left that to its own. And, you know, one, that's one of the successes, I would say, of our economic development district, right? We went from 35% occupancy to 100% occupancy. The problem is, is when you look at it in that main corridor, there's only three Latino-owned businesses that remain, and only one of them owns their own property. And that we find that the reason for that is largely because there's not um, enough organizations that are providing capital for folks that typically have difficult receiving that capital. And moreover, we need to start securing commercial development properties so we can lower the cost of entry. And so, you know, that's one of the things that we're thinking about now, particularly with Mother Road Market going in at 11th and, and, and Lewis and the work that the Lobeck Taylor Family Foundation is really trying to do to spur development there. If we don't do this right, and thankfully we've got great partners with them, if we don't do this right, we could undo the work that we've done so far because the economic development sector plays a huge role in that inclusive growth. Well, Kirk, this is, uh, I think, just such valuable information. And I, I don't know if you would agree, but I really feel like you all have the blueprint for, or at least one blueprint for, for building up a community. For those of you who want to know more about Growing Together Tulsa and the work that they've done in Kendall Whittier, you can check out the website at gttulsa.org. Kirk, thanks so much for dropping by, uh, lean in and, and sharing your insight. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This is really a privilege. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Let me know your thoughts about this episode. I'm easy to reach on Twitter at Jabron Pasha, on Instagram at What Medicine Did, and on unlockingimplicitbias.com. Thanks for leaning in with me.